But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. Luke chapter 20, verse 35 and 36. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This encounter in Luke chapter 20 between Jesus and the Sadducees happened so fast that you might have kind of missed the point, like where the arrow was going, without a little bit of backdrop. The text supplies um, all that's needed, but um, unpacking just a little bit more of the setting uh, can help us see what Jesus is really teaching here. So the Sadducees, as Luke mentions, didn't believe in the resurrection. That was one of their defining points of doctrine. Um, But they weren't chiefly a doctrinal group. They were um, the leadership of the temple uh, in Jerusalem. So they were partly made up by priests, partly made up by kind of politically minded folks, kind of negotiating and navigating between their Roman overlords and the Jewish practices. Uh, They were the, um, the power wielders in the ancient city of Jerusalem. And it turns out they didn't believe that the soul had any existence on the other side of death. They believed that when you died, that was just the end of your life. Uh, and then subsequently, there was, you know, it would be impossible. There is no resurrection then uh, to come. So that was what they believed as a matter of doctrine. And when they come to Jesus, they're not asking him a question, like wanting to learn from him, clearly, right? They're, they're antagonizing him. Like so many encounters in the Gospels, they're coming. They think they've got this poser, that if they just put this before Jesus, they'll show how wrong he is and how right they are. That's the tone they're approaching him. And you may wonder how, with readings like we just heard from Job, right, I will see God while yet in my flesh. Or the psalm, um, you know, I will behold righteousness, talking on the other side of death. How on earth could the Sadducees have thought there was no life after death and no resurrection? Um, The answer is because they believed only the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative. So they, they they read Job and the psalms and they said, well, that's just Job and the Psalms. Really, the five books of Moses is, is our bedrock of truth. And um, which right there, there should be a warning for us, right? That we should never take a portion of Scripture and say, well, this portion I believe, and this portion, you know, I'm so-so about. And that was really the arch mistake of the Sadducees. So they come to Jesus with this poser, and I think on the other side of the life of um, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, it would have been even more shocking, this story, seven husbands, right? I mean, it was, they're trying, it's like a, you know, they, they call it like a, an ad absurdum argument, right? It's just, it's so crazy, but it shows, you know, um, their case in its strongest form. So they come with this uh, the story of, uh, and, and the Old Testament law is recounted in the story. Well, you know, Jesus, you know, Moses gave us this this rule about if there's no children and uh, then the brother has to marry the widow. And, and part of that was all part of the Sadducees' view that God promises in the five books of Moses that he will give life. And that had always been received as, right, right, eternal life with him. That's the hope. They sort of reinterpreted it according to their taste to say, no, the fulfillment of God's promise for life is just children, progeny, descendants. That's how your life continues, not your soul after you die. Uh, so that's, you know, that's part of why this ground is, uh, is the ground they're, they're fighting on and why they bring up this, this called leveret marriage. Um, so they bring this poser to Jesus, and Jesus, uh, he just pops it very simply. <laughs> um, and he, what I love is that he uses what they believe to be truth, right? He grounds it in the five books of Moses. 
He says that story where Moses encounters the bush, so he's on their territory of what's true. And he says, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? Not, not God was the God of Abraham, but he is the God of Abraham, implying that Abraham is still alive, still exists in some way, that his life has continued beyond death. So he just sort of right away just ignores this sort of crazy argument at first, um, well, actually, at, in the end, and he just pops it. Of course there's life after death. Of course there's a resurrection. He destroys their, their argument. Um, that's the main thing that Jesus is teaching. And like so many um, of the encounters where someone tries to best Jesus with the knowledge of the truth, uh, it ends, if you read a few verses on, uh, it's one of my favorite phrases in the Gospels, that you see it many times, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> right, it's like they're trying to like pretentiously knock, like say, we know the truth, and the real truth just blows it out of the water every time. Um, so that's that's the main thing Jesus is teaching. Um, but in our day, especially here we are, friends gathered in church, we don't struggle the same way as the Sadducees to believe that there's a life after death, right? That's not really our pickle. I hope none of you struggle with that. You may. It, it's okay if you do, but it's not a common struggle. Um, it's part of the article. We, can, we rehearse it each time we say the creed, right? Um, I believe he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, implying we're all still going to exist to be judged uh, by him. So, But there's actually a second thing that Jesus teaches. He, Jesus always does this. He takes what is presented in the moment and offers multiple truths in his response. There's a second teaching built in here um, that Jesus ties in to his defense of the resurrection, which I think we do struggle with. Um, and it's this idea that in the next life, there'll be no more being given in marriage. Now, you might say, well, I don't struggle with that. Let me tell you what I want to speak into this morning. Um, the thing that makes marriage the unique relationship that it is, is sex. Um, if you think about all of the other things that are qualities of marriage, commitment, domestic support, loyalty, love, those can, can, can exist in other forums, right? Friendship, relatives, roommates. Um, sex is what makes marriage unique. So Jesus, I think, is actually offering us some teaching about sex. And what I want to say right now is, now that I've made things really awkward, <laughs> as I don't plan on teaching on sex very often, but the Bible doesn't shrink from teaching from it from time to time, isn't ashamed to, so I, I don't want to be ashamed to either. And I know for you with kids, I'm probably provoking some interesting lunchtime conversations, um, to which I'd say age-appropriate answers, right? And part of why I want to preach about this this morning is because the world is constantly messaging us things. I mean, every day Hollywood is cranking out messages about sex, which we're taking in even if we're trying not to, through advertisements and billboards. Every, it's everywhere. And so even though there might be some interesting lunchtime conversations, a godly, age-appropriate word from, a, from the parents is surely the best introduction rather than the world's introduction, which will come all too soon. Um, but I want to uh, comfort you. That, trust me, I'll be modest. We're not going anything that will be. We're not, I'm not going to say anything that's immodest. Um, secondly, uh, I actually have ex explained in more detail some things I want to teach about today in a little uh, tract at the back. If you want to take it with you, feel free to grab it on the way out, uh, just to sort of further unpack some of these things. So Jesus says, when a Christian dies, he or she becomes like the angels, equal to the angels is Jesus' words. Why have I claimed that one of the points here um, is that there is uh, no sex in heaven? I think 
This is built into a very condensed logic that Jesus is offering. And it's right there when we see this. He says, in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. So what's the connection there? Why would not dying anymore have any bearing on marriage? Here's what I think. I think here's the condensed logic. God gave marriage to us um, chiefly uh, as, the, uh, as the means uh, of bringing forth children. If you look in the marriage, right, on page 201 of the prayer book, you don't have to look there, but it says the, the chief reason God gave marriage is for children. There are other reasons besides, but that's the chief. And the means, of course, of producing children is sex. So if marriage, uh, the one arena in which God has blessed sex, brings forth children, and one of the reasons that God has ordained for children to be brought forth is to replace us on the earth, right, to continue the human race that we all get 70 years or, or in strength even 80, as the good book says, or sometimes even a bit more than that. Um, but eventually we're all going to die. And God has given us a way of sort of continuing the human race. We've actually allowed to participate in his creative power um, in bringing forth other humans so that when we're gone, there's still humans around. Right? So see the connection. Marriage, sex, children, to replace us when we die. But in the next life, death is done away with. Right? There'll be no more death anymore in the new heavens and the new earth. So if there's no more death, well, there's no need to replace yourself with children. <laughs> and if there's no need for new children to come into it, well, then the primary reason for sex has been taken away, which is the one thing that makes marriage sort of the ultimately unique mar- relationship that it is. So do you see the logic between marriage and death? Because death is being taken away, there's not a need for marriage anymore because there's not a need for sex because there's not a need for children. I think that's the logic here. I mean, I, I invite you to try and find a, a tighter reason, understanding of why Jesus would say that there's no marriage because there's no death. So I promise you, I'm not making this up. That's why I wasn't looking for a chance to preach about sex. Um, <laughs> the scriptures presented it to me. Those who attain to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more. We won't be able to die anymore because God will share with us his immortality. That's a quality that he has in himself. He's already shared it with his angels. His angels are already living forever. They're thousands and thousands of years old. We don't know exactly on what day they were made. Um, And we too will have that property, his shared immortality. And that's why we'll be called children of God. Or some translations will say sons of God, which is kind of this play on words because it's a nickname in the Old Testament for angels, as you see in the Psalms. And we'll be like the Son of God, Jesus, who is immortal. So that's our immortal existence that we have ahead. And just as the angels, so Jesus is saying there's this sort of comparison that can be made equal to the angels. The angels find their perfect bliss, total contentment and satisfaction in contemplating the goodness of God. Just immediately in God's real presence. Uh, right before him. They just enjoy his presence so much. That is their infinite satisfaction. In the same way that's true for them, what Jesus is teaching is that's going to be true for us. We'll find our ultimate satisfaction, our greatest bliss, in just beholding the goodness of God in heaven. By comparison, the carnal pleasures of this life will be nothing compared to the bliss of heaven. And why I think all this comes to bear is when Jesus tells us something about our ultimate end, where we're going, that should shape sort of how we live now. And one way I was thinking about this is 
let's say you had a friend who was a med student and um, you saw him, he, he went to the bathroom and he didn't wash his hands after. And you're like, dude, are you going to wash your hands? And he said, well, I'm not a doctor yet. He's like, yeah, but shouldn't you be getting in the habit now of not spreading contagion? Like, right, we, it would be, it's foolish to not live into the direction in which you're headed. Similarly, I think our understanding of sex and marriage now should be informed by where we're headed, right? God's told us where we're going to end up. So let's have our lives be sort of headed in that direction already. And what do I mean by that? Um, to fight the messages from our culture, which are inescapable. I mean, they're in the grocery checkout line, for goodness sakes. If we think that carnal pleasure is life's chief good, we're sorely mistaken. If we think that the reason marriage exists is for pleasure, we've misunderstood marriage. Unity is actually the enduring good of marriage. It says in 1 Corinthians that um, faith, hope, and love remain, and the greatest of these is love. Love does continue into the next life into that age, into the age of resurrection. Uh, sex will not. Unity and love and charity will. In fact, um, since we know that in the next life, uh, carnal pleasure and sex is out of the picture, I think what that means for Christian marriage, and here's kind of the thesis I want to present to for your consideration this morning. I think the goal of Christian marriage now should actually be to become indifferent to pleasure. Indifferent, meaning if it's there, great. If it's not, fine. Indifferent. The, the, the world is constantly saying, what's the culmination of almost every movie? That, you know, the, the couple coming together, right, in this sort of passionate romance scene. But actually, the pleasures of the flesh to a Christian should become a thing indifferent. A thing indifferent. I think part of what drives Viagra culture is that it's not become indifferent. It's become this sort of prize that we have to hold on to. It's like, no, for the Christian, indifference is the goal. For, actually, for all pleasures. But here I'm speaking about this in particular. Indifferent about pleasure, but deeply invested in unity. Unity and love. Not to be indifferent about those things ever, right? but more invested as we grow as Christians. And to support this thesis, I want you just to think of the angels. Try and conjure in your mind for a minute. An angel right, in the immediate presence of God with no bad habits, no sins that are messing them up, um, and that they find that they're sort of these, they're the sort of crystalline, harmonious existence in perfect peace and perfect purity as they just look in the face of God and are delighted. I think the faces of children give us an instance of what the angels look like, right? this simplicity and innocence. And know that, as you picture that angel, God has something similar in store for us, for you, right? That we'll be like, we'll be equal to the angels. That's the clear teaching of Jesus, that we'll be like them if, and this is the condition Jesus attaches, if we are considered worthy to attain to that age. That's Jesus's phrase. If we're considered worthy to attain to that age. As Christians, I, I know each of you already know the answer to how are we considered worthy, right? To be found in Christ Jesus, to have come to him in faith, to be a member of his body, to be nurtured by his sacraments and clinging to him and his blood for our salvation by faith. That's how we are counted worthy for that age. So I want to suggest that perhaps some of you, when you think about this sort of angelic heaven, it doesn't sound that good. Right? I've heard many, many people say, oh, if heaven's just sitting on a, harp, on a cloud playing a harp, I don't want it. 
And when I hear that, I get what they're saying. I mean, that's a parody because it sounds dull and, and strange. Um, but when I hear that, actually, the, um, I also hear a heart that doesn't see that looking at God is going to be a great joy. Right? The angels are the happiest beings in creation right now. Well, second happiest. The, probably the saints in heaven are the first happiest. But the angels are the second happiest. Um, just because they are looking at God. So if it doesn't sound that good, if this idea of a, a, an existence that's like the angels, you're like, oh, this is Christianity, what? Um, I would encourage you to pray that the Lord would open your eyes to it, that it would, that he would give you the gift of, of seeing it for what it is and seeing that it is good, that to be made like an angel would be a great gift. We don't become angels, we remain humans, right? but our existence is like theirs, equal to theirs. So I would encourage you that if all this just sounds super weird, I pray that the Lord would um, open your eyes to see the joy that the angels do experience. Um, a, a regular prayer of mine is that I would be released from the sort of intoxicating effects of the pleasures of this life, right? That I wouldn't be tethered to this age because of just, just because of what feels good, but would instead um, be tethered to the next age. Um, as I thought, thought about it, you know, so much of the Christian life can be described of we are doing inwardly now what will be outward later, right? And now it's by faith, then it's by sight. That pray that God would give you the heart like an angel now, a heart that's fit for heaven, so that we will then receive a body that's fit for heaven at the resurrection. Let me say that one more time. Pray that I encourage you to pray that God would give you a heart like an angel, fit for heaven, so that when we do die, when we are raised by his mercy on the last day, uh, we will receive bodies fit for heaven, in which we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Amen.